Hello and welcome to the weekend wrap for the week on Wednesday. It is Sunday the 3rd of September and a happy Father's Day to all who celebrate. Obviously in my household, not a day where we do very much at all other than of course come to you with the latest news, current events, current affairs, a bit of a look at what happened on Insiders, what's going on around the country and indeed around the world. I hope you're having a wonderful, wonderful day. It has been a huge few days in Australian politics. I want to start with the new tranche of industrial relations reforms. Now, we've been talking about these for some time. Consultations been ongoing for months. And now we had Tony Burke on Insiders being interviewed by David Spears, who really didn't seem to understand as much about the IR system as perhaps we would have hoped. Classic example, him referring to union delegates as though somehow or another union delegates were from outside the workplace. As regular listeners of this show will know, and in fact, as every union member will know, a union delegate is actually a worker in the workplace. They are elected by their fellow workers to represent them. As Tony Burke pointed out, the changes for union delegates will be to give them greater training and support to represent their fellow workers in the workplace and so that they know the rights that workers have, that they can help enforce them. Fundamentally a good thing. Look, that interview made a few things very, very clear. The big business lobby do not want these changes. They do not want the criminalization of deliberate wage theft. They certainly do not want the closure of the labor hire loopholes, and they do not want the gig economy to be regulated, certainly some elements at least. Let's go through those in detail. The first, criminalizing wage theft. Tony Burke makes the point. If the worker deliberately puts their hand in the till and takes money out and takes it home, they've stolen and they should be and are usually criminally charged. If the employer does that to the worker, takes money out of their pay packet or just simply doesn't put it in and deliberately withholds it, they are not charged. There is no criminal offence except in the jurisdictions of Victoria and Queensland. What this does is introduce a federal offence. Why is this important? Well, 7-Eleven was a case brought up on Insiders, but 7-Eleven is not the only case where this has happened. Deliberate wage theft is a business model in some sectors. Why? Because, quite frankly, the punishments have been so low. That's why in Victoria, a place where you have a lot of high-end hospitality, that turns out has a higher than average propensity to do this. And in Queensland, a place of many tourism and hospitality venues, again, with higher proportions. Not to say that every business that's in hospitality does this, because of course we know there are many great businesses in hospitality that don't do this, that do pay their workers properly. But when you've got whole sectors where people are building empires, Of course, anyone who has heard me talk about Justin Hems will know how I feel about the Maryvale uh, situation where there has been deliberate, deliberate theft from workers and then arguments made that that money shouldn't be repaid because it has been used to buy more venues and hire more staff who will in effect be stolen from in order to 
build the empire of those corporations and their owners. That's why we need federal laws, quite frankly, because while there are some who make a mistake, and mistakes happen, we acknowledge that, although it's interesting to note how rarely there are mistakes that overpay workers for years and years at a time compared to how often there are mistakes that underpay workers for years and years at a time. One suspects there are some incentives in place that encourage uh at least a level of conservatism, if not downright bias, to make sure that's the case. But nonetheless, if someone makes a genuine mistake, they will have opportunities to make redress. If someone is deliberately stealing from their workers, they should face penalties for this. As Tony Burke said, this is not about sending people to prison. This is about making sure people are paid properly. And on that theme, let's talk about labour hire. Because as I've pointed out previously, labour hire has become a means to undermine collective agreements in this country. BHP wholly owns a subsidiary company whose only function is to serve as labour hire for BHP. They hire employees through a company they own to replace employees who are covered by a collective agreement in order to undermine the wages of those workers. That is, quite frankly, morally bankrupt. They're not the only ones. Qantas, who we'll talk about in more detail later in this episode, have been doing this for some time. In fact, they utilise 17 different labour hire companies and have not directly engaged a flight attendant since the year 2008. And yet their CEO will be walking away with a $10 million bonus. This kind of corporate culture is corrosive to our nation. It fundamentally undermines people's faith and trust, not just in these corporations themselves, but in the ability of our democracy to protect us from the rampant greed of capitalism. Capitalism and democracy are different political theories. There is no question that it is a marriage of convenience. Capitalism does well when well-regulated by democracy. Democracy makes revolution less likely, and it can ensure that the benefits of capitalism are more equitably shared. There are benefits to those two things working hand in hand. I myself am a democratic socialist, but there's no question that when capitalism and democracy work well together, there are benefits. What we're seeing is rampant capitalists undermining the very thing that protects them, the democratic license to operate. Labor hire and its exploitation in the way that it has been done by people like BHP and Qantas, is a classic example. Another example is the way casuals have become permanent in our system. On Insiders Today, Samantha, they discussed the need for tourism locations to have flexible workforces for high season and low season and the occasional conference that might come in low season. That's what casual 
employment is for, for seasonality, for filling gaps. Far too often we find people stuck on permanent casual arrangements. The changes that are being proposed by Tony Burke would see that people's employment is properly defined. It may shock you to learn, as Tony Burke explained at the press club on Wednesday, on Thursday, that employee is not really defined under the Fair Work Act. What they're going to do is they're going to define it so that you cannot be stuck forever as a casual simply because the boss says you are a casual, that the types of employment will be more clearly defined. Now, there will always be a need for some flexibility in the workplace, and that flexibility should cut both ways. Workers who need flexibility for caring arrangements, for medical appointments, to simply take care of the day-to-day elements of being a human being in a society should be able to access some flexibility as well. And employers who need additional workers on a temporary basis to deal with an influx of business should be able to do that as well. But there is a value to that. As was pointed out, there should be a price to pay. And people might hear a lot in the coming weeks about how casuals get a loading This is true. There is notionally a loading for casuals. However, the 25% loading in most industries has become wrapped up and effectively now underpays workers. I'll give you an example. A lot of agreements and awards say that if you get the loading, you get paid a certain rate as a casual. That rate will not necessarily change. So the casual rate is X plus loading 25%. If you are, however, an ongoing employee, in your first year, you might get X. In your second year, you might get X plus 7%. Third year, X plus 7% plus 4% and so on and so forth. What this has done is over time, and through the deliberate use of more casuals and less ongoing staff by some corporations, resulted in the casual loading being eroded. What does this mean? It means that in reality, in the practical day-to-day operation of our economic interactions, casual employees are paid less than ongoing employees. So all the value of the flexibility of casual goes to the employer. Now, I'm sure there are some cases where that's not the case. I'm talking, of course, in aggregate and on average. Sadly, the reason why it is the case on average and in aggregate is that the biggest users of casual employees, I'm talking here about hospitality, I'm talking here about retail, are fundamentally doing this en masse, and you see the gap widen and widen and widen. One of the other key points that has been raised about the IR changes that Tony Burke is introducing into the Parliament on Monday, which will be debated for four weeks, giving the crossbench plenty of time to have discussions, is around the regulation of the gig economy. And 
This seems to be boggling the minds of people like David Spears and also, quite frankly, some of the platform providers themselves. You see, for a long time, this country has operated under conservative rule and it has operated under a set of certain political beliefs which place the supremacy of the corporation above the supremacy of the person and the worker and the community. What Tony Burke is doing with his regulatory reform when it comes to the gig economy is placing the supremacy of the person ahead of the supremacy of the corporation. What does that mean? Well, it means this, that rather than trying to regulate how platforms operate, the government will be regulating how workers are defined. What does that mean for the platforms? Well, it means that if you have people working through your platform who meet certain criteria, those being that they are low paid or paid less than the minimum standards, that they are in fact have low bargaining power, that is, they cannot really set the price themselves or they are subject to underbidding or are in fact simply employees in all but name, then you will end up having a situation where people can become employee-like. That means they will be subject to Fair Work Commission orders that give those workers greater security. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because there are some platforms that describe themselves as horizontal and some platforms that describe themselves as vertical. This is language used by tech bros, effectively. And I'll give you the classic example. The classic example is Mabel, and they're in the care economy space, effectively NDIS and aged care. They would call themselves a horizontal platform. That is that they just connect workers with people who want those workers to do services for them, and that then they allow people to simply go about their business. Now, the question is, do those workers have low bargaining power? Do they have low levels of control over their work? And are they paid less than they would get if they were employed as an employee? In the vast majority of cases, the answer to all three of those questions is yes. Now, Mabel would say that's simply the market playing itself out. The problem with that theory is that the NDIS is a government-funded program. It's a government-funded marketplace. The prices are set, in effect. There is a range at which people should be being paid. And that range takes into account the idea that people are in fact employees or have genuine costs of running their own business. Now, when someone like Mabel comes along and simply takes a cut for matching, as they call it, workers with clients, they are in fact fact encouraging 
workers to underbid each other and clients to force down the price. What does this mean? This means that low-paid workers, and keep in mind that even employees in the care sector are generally low-paid, will be paid even less. Not only that, it means that companies that are trying to do the right thing and employ people, whether they do that through a platform like HireUp does or in a traditional bricks-and-mortar location base, are being undercut. So everyone effectively loses. Some people will say, well, no, the clients can benefit. But the reality is that while there may be a short-term immediate benefit, in the medium and long term, quality in the sector will decline. Why? Because workers will have to take on more and more clients. They'll be able to spend less and less time with the clients that they have. And in fact, good performers will be driven out of the market, unable to compete on price. There is a very, very slippery slope here. Tony Burke refers to it as the cliff, that if you're a full-time employee, you're at the top of the cliff. If you're a worker on a platform that does not provide any minimum standards, you're essentially at the bottom. Now, there's no question that the details of this are going to vary from case to case, and that's why it's about empowering the commission to make decisions based on reality, not based on the fear campaigns of corporations. Keep in mind that companies like Mabel are owned by global private equity firms like General Atlantic and have strong ties to both the Murdoch and Packer families. These are not mum and dad operations. These are not your local small business. By the way, small businesses of less than 15 employees will be exempt from most of these reforms. What we're talking about here is really how do we as Australians want our country to be? Do we want different classes of people, those who have entitlements and minimum wages and those who don't? Or do we want to say that there is a floor below which no one can fall? There's nothing that says in any of the proposals that you can't pay people more. And if Mabel or any of the rideshare companies or food delivery companies want to institute higher than minimum wage entitlements for their workforce, they are welcome to do so. But none of what I've seen and I've seen a lot, suggests they want to do that. In fact, I've seen companies like Mabel email their clients on the NDIS trying to scare them about what these changes will do. And quite frankly, I think it's disgusting. I think that we sort of expect employers or businesses or corporations to try and scare their workers around any changes that might improve the power of workers to get better wages and conditions. What we don't expect is that the clients, particularly clients in a program like the NDIS or in-home aged care, where many of those clients will be particularly vulnerable, 
to the messaging they receive from what has until now been a trusted provider of services, I think we expect better. I think we expect that they won't engage in that kind of propaganda. Yet from the emails that I have seen provided to me by workers who I will not name on this show for their own privacy and for the fact that we know, as Tony Burke says, that workers in on these platforms can be simply switched off and have all access to income denied to them. Another part of the reforms Tony Burke is bringing in will stop that process from occurring. But until it comes in, we need to protect workers who are brave enough, brave enough to spill the beans. Of course, your rights in the workplace are always made stronger by being a member of your union. And whether you're in transportation, whether you're in food delivery, whether you are in the care economy, there is a union for you. And you can go to australianunions.org.au slash wow to join your union. That's W-O-W, stands for Week on Wednesday. You can join your union online as you listen to this podcast or on your way to work, however you might decide to do it. It's fundamentally important. Let's talk a little bit about Qantas. Of course, Qantas have been for a long time at the forefront of exploiting loopholes in our labour laws. As I mentioned, 17 different labour hire firms have not engaged a flight attendant directly since 2008. But of course, the rules that apply to the worker in the plane, on the tarmac, in the terminal, are not the rules that apply in the corporate office. And Alan Joyce will be walking away with a $10 million bonus this year. He, of course, his final year as CEO and his successor got a $2 million bonus. This comes at the same time as it's been announced that 8,000 cases, 8,000 cases of Qantas selling flights that did not exist are being investigated by the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, the ACCC. It boggles the mind that a board of any kind, of any company, would consider giving its outgoing CEO a $10 million bonus while it's under investigation for 8,000 cases of misconduct. At the same time, it has been found to have unlawfully sacked workers, some 2,000 or so workers, because they wanted to disrupt those workers' ability to negotiate pay rises. This is a company that once was described as the national carrier, and some people still describe it that way. It's a company that received $2.7 billion from the Morrison government. It's a company which has benefited from a fairly protectionist approach when it comes to accessing Australian air routes between capital cities for foreign carriers. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm of the view that we should have a national carrier, and I'm of the view that Qantas should be the national carrier. But it should not be the national carrier in its current guise. Currently, it is a corporation that is exploiting workers, taking advantage of customers, and lobbying all sides of politics to maximise 
its profits, and its corporate bonuses. That is not the kind of national carrier we need. The window of opportunity that was presented by the pandemic was to make Qantas a truly national carrier. Morrison squandered that opportunity. He gave them $2.7 billion for nothing while they were unlawfully sacking their workers. The opportunity now presents itself to a Labor government. With 8,000 cases before the ACCC, one suspects there should be a substantial penalty. One suspects that penalty could be exchanged for equity. Wouldn't that be something if after all these years and the departure of Alan Joyce, we get a third opportunity to renationalise the once great flying kangaroo? Until that happens, I don't think anyone will have any trust in Qantas. And it's not just an Alan Joyce problem. Quite frankly, the board of Qantas is a disgrace. Absolute disgrace. To sign off on a bonus, not just Alan Joyce, but to his successor, who has been part of and overseen so much of these heinous acts, these heinous business practices, suggests that they simply do not understand the community values that they are required to uphold and indeed suggests that they are potentially in breach of their duties. That was raised on Insiders Today. How can the Qantas board continue? How can these individuals hold these roles when they have so clearly failed to protect the brand, the reputation, and the long-term value for shareholders, which I guess many of Australians will be because of their investments through superannuation. This has a long way to play out. And quite frankly, I can only see it getting worse for the Qantas board, for Alan Joyce's successors, unless something fundamentally changes. And the Albanese Labor government does need to take strong action here. Of course, Peter Darden will try and make some strange accusations about favourable treatment and so on and so forth. I don't think anyone believes for a moment that Qantas hasn't been treated favourably and that it hasn't been treated favourably by all sides of politics when in government because there is a natural inclination towards having a national carrier. Most countries outside of the United States have a national carrier that is government-owned. Australia sold off our national carrier, and now theoretically we have a competitive market. But we don't really. We don't really have a competitive market, and time and time again, Australian governments of both stripes have helped, bailed out, sustained Qantas. The problem is now that on the back of a $2.5 billion profit, a $10 million bonus to an outgoing CEO, and a board whose connection to reality seems about as fragile as that of someone in the Wheel of Time series, it's not possible 
to continue as we have been. Something will have to change. Finally, I want to finish on an upbeat note. Because, of course, today it's come out that John Farnham, the voice himself, is giving permission to the Yes campaign to use his iconic song, You're the Voice, for their advertising. Now, I think this is a fantastic move. There's no question that there is a generation of Australians who grew up, experienced young adulthood, listening to Farnsey sing The Voice. It's been described as an unofficial Australian anthem. Now, there will be a generation of Australians for whom John Farnham and The Voice is not a song they're particularly familiar with, or perhaps it's one of those songs they've heard and listened to ironically or on a remix. That's fine. For most young Australians, people who perhaps a bit younger than me, who didn't grow up with John Farnham, most of them are already voting yes. It's the Australians who are a bit older than me and perhaps uh, enjoyed John Farnham in their late teens and early 20s for whom this will be a very important cultural road sign. It is an indication of the mainstream acceptability of voting yes because it happens on the same day where Peter Dutton has attempted once again to muddy the waters on the referendum by suggesting that if he becomes Prime Minister, they will hold a referendum if this is defeated, if the voice referendum is defeated, they'll hold a referendum just on constitutional recognition. Mind you, at the same time as he was announcing this, and I saw this footage on Insiders, he also said that they went to the last election and the election before and the election before that with the same promise. So across three terms of government, Peter Dutton, who was a senior minister in all three terms, failed to deliver a referendum on constitutional recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. Did not deliver it, but is now promising that if we all vote no this time, then when he becomes prime minister, heaven help us all, he will deliver a referendum that just focuses on one small part of what this one will deliver. The man is grasping at straws, muddying the waters. At no point did he suggest this when it could have actually been useful. He has failed to engage in good faith. His coalition partners announced that they would be campaigning against the referendum question before there was even draft legislation before the parliament. This is just more misdirection. And on the back of if you don't know, just vote no, I will quote John Farnham. You're the voice. Try and understand it. Make a noise and make it clear. That's what The Voice is about. That's what The Voice will deliver. And quite frankly, if you think that Peter Dutton will somehow or another deliver a different version of constitutional recognition, well, I've got an opera house in Sydney I can sell you for cents on the dollar.
that's it for the weekend wrap. I hope you're having a wonderful day. I hope you will join Van and I on Wednesday for the week on Wednesday. A huge shout out and thanks to all who have liked, commented, shared. Don't forget to do that. Don't forget to talk about these issues with your friends and family. I will be out campaigning this week at train stations. I'm sure many other people will as well. Don't forget to support the long walk, which is happening for the Yes campaign. Also, don't forget to support other campaigns that are still happening as well. The union movement is active on these issues around Qantas. Uh, The TWU, the Australian Services Union, all of the unions are active in that space. Of course, the NDIS continues to be an issue, as does education. Don't forget, you can check out foreverychild.au. 98% of Australia's public schools are underfunded. In the next 12 months, the Australian governments, both state and federal, have an opportunity to fix that problem only $6 billion. You might say, well, that sounds like a lot of money. In the context of a $2 trillion a year budget, it really, really isn't. When you consider that Qantas makes a third of that in profit, it really, really isn't. So until Wednesday, remember, be kind to yourself and to each other.